From the Journeys of Belonging to Blackness Digital Media Project, I'm India Lorik Wilmot, and you're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Joining us today is Dr. Kristen Smith. Kristen is a Black feminist, anthropologist, social justice advocate, Associate Professor of Anthropology and African and African Diaspora Studies, and the Director of the Center for Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She is the founder of Hashtag Cite Black Women, which is a social movement network, podcast, and blog that intends to acknowledge and honor Black women's longstanding intellectual production and motivate others to consciously incorporate and cite Black women's scholarship into their works, a practice that's often overlooked and undervalued. The author of the book, Afro Paradise, Blackness, Violence, and Performance in Brazil, Kristen's writings and social justice advocacy focuses on anti-Black state-sanctioned police violence throughout the Americas and particularly in Brazil. Specifically, she contends with gendered and racialized police violence and its impact on African-descended women and communities, and, of course, their efforts of resistance. Noted as an expert on Black liberation and featured on programs such as NPR, you can find Kristen's essays and articles across various outlets, including the American Anthropologist, the Huffington Post, the American Prospect, and the Black Scholar. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me today. Act One, Call to Adventure. I am intrigued by the ways you've used your scholar activism, not only toward advancing the voice and personhood of African descendants as it relates to Black liberation and the dismantling of white supremacist systems and bureaucracy, but also in the, in the need to edify scholars and to get them to rethink the politics of race and gender and knowledge production when it comes to actually citing the intellectual contributions of Black women's works. And it's interesting because at first glance, uh, the two sides of myself seem like they're not connected probably to people um, because for almost 20 years now, I've been doing research and work on Brazil and have been working with folk down in Brazil around the movement against anti-Black policing and anti-Black state violence there. And part of that work, and this is where it's interesting because I really appreciate your question because it helped me to kind of think about how did I get from the struggle around and against policing to citation? And I think part of what I've always sought to do as a scholar is to disrupt hierarchies of knowledge. And so one of the things that I was aware of when I was in Brazil, when I first started going to Brazil, that the experts on the topics that I was really wanting to look at were the people that I was working with. They're people in the communities, they're the organizers, they're the, they're the militantes as we call them, right? Um, activists, they don't like to be called activists, so I don't ever call folk activists because they say activists do activities. 
Um, and so the militantes, the people who are out there really fighting against the system. And I realized that they were as much part of my dissertation committee um, as were my professors at the university. And so one of the things that I started to do really early on in my work, and this comes from sociologists like yourself, like Patricia Hill Collins, who talk about the need to valorize Black women's everyday theorizing, right? Disrupting that knowledge hierarchy that we've had in anthropology since the dawn of time that, that really looks at some people as informants and some people as the scholars who interpret life and really foregrounding the experiences of the folk that I was working with as theory, not just as information. And so that in and of itself really helped me to reframe how I think about knowledge. And I think that a lot of that comes from my early Black feminist training from college and, and reading and, and being, you know, I think the very first book that I read when I got to college and I went to Princeton. So back in the day, the very first book that I read, Angela Davis's Race, Women in Class, right? I, and it made a profound impact on me. Right. And I was, I mean, that was like my first class. And it was with, I, I'll never forget, it was with uh, Professor Juanima Lubiano. And we were just reading, you know, Davis and Audre Lorde and, you know, all these Black feminists that I had never read before, but who were speaking my life. And that really shaped the way that I approached not only knowledge circulation, but knowledge production, knowledge consumption, et cetera. And so I have always sought to put the voices of Black people and Black communities to the foreground of my work as theorizing and not just informing what it is that I'm doing in the traditional anthropological sense. And so for me, that has always been about recognizing the ways that we need to disrupt white supremacy, patriarchy, misogyny, et cetera, and particularly putting Black women's voices first. These things have always been very salient to me. But part of what ended up happening, like it does with most people, most Black women, I don't know if most Black women, but as I'm doing site Black women for, for this time, I'm realizing it's a lot of us out here that have this experience. I very innocently came to the academy thinking that this was a meritocracy and we could just produce our research, and that if it was well done, that people would engage it and that other scholars cite you because you cite what other people have said when you're talking. I mean, I was trained to read widely and to go out and figure out who has talked about this before. Cite them, engage their work. You know, the very innocent things that we all learn (laughs) that we think are truth before we get into the academy. And then what ended up happening was that I very quickly realized that the politics of citation in the academy are very misogynist and anti-Black and impact Black women in very perverse ways. And so I had very a very nasty experience early on in my tenure track career where a young scholar plagiarized my work paraphrased it, did so brazenly with the co-signage of senior scholars. Wow. And that was when I started, actually I started to say Black Women a couple years after that. It took me about 
five years after that experience to get to the point where I really wanted to, to where I was at the breaking point. And I decided that I wanted to try to make an intervention around that. But it took mm-hmm. me a while to get my voice around that. And that's a really kind of roundabout way of saying that it is that early training around foregrounding the voices of people from communities. And that's where my citational politics come from. But the actual praxis around cite Black women in particular came from the pain of the experience of being erased. And so it's interesting because our journeys are a mixture of both charted path and unexpected experience. That's where you get all these disparate disparate pieces of me to to kind of paraphrase Toni Morrison. Now I'm going to call you to telling us your adventure to all these desperate paths because they all come and they meet at a particular point at different times. So. It's really interesting because I feel as if I'm still discovering those paths and I'm still thinking through where I am. And so it's almost as if I'm still in the middle of a journey that I'm not really sure what the entire map looks like. Mm -hmm. For example, I came to Brazil because I have been interested in Black politics and Black movements probably my my whole life. My father is someone who was very active organizing Black communities as a Baptist minister. And I grew up with him organizing protests and making denunciations and grew up around folk who were leaders of the civil rights movement. And so engaging in social justice work has always been a part of who I am. And for me, getting to the point where I really wanted to understand more about the Black community from a very early age. One of the things that I was always intrigued by was the extent to which Black people around the world are connected. And, you know, that's not something, I don't know about everybody else's education. That's not something that I I went to public schools pretty much my whole life. And it's not something we were taught about in school for the most part. We kind of taught about it informally. You grew up in D.C. I grew up in D.C., yeah. I grew up in so D.C. Chocolate City, but yet there's still like this gulf in terms of knowledge production and the teachings around the African descendant experience that there was still dearthness and that you were still seeking. And outside of your dad, you know, you had to cultivate that on your own. Absolutely. And I think that it's hard to explain because I think that we got a lot of information about Black culture, but it was very superficial. And so it was very much the kind of information you get in your social studies textbooks and not the kind of information that you get from being in spaces. And so I was always interested in kind of like cultures and really trying to understand others, other countries and other cultures. And so I started traveling when I was in high school, going to the Middle East actually. And I was re- really interested in blackness in the Middle East of all things. Like, I know it sounds like, where did you get from? How did you go from there to here? But I was always interested in blackness in the Middle East and, and had had done a lot of work. I, I took Arabic in high school. I took Arabic all through college. That was my undergraduate thesis was on black identity among young women in North Africa. And so 
I was always interested in, in, in these things. But when I got to graduate school, I realized that there was a whole part of the world, namely my own hemisphere, that I didn't know anything about. And there was this huge country that had all these Black people that I didn't even know had Black people because nobody told me about them. And that ended up in me coming to Brazil in order to do research on Black identity formation. But when I got there, I was all bright-eyed and curious about Black identity formation. And I, and I was wanting to know, you know, well, people say that Blackness is really not very salient in Brazil. And so... I wanted to really talk to people about how they form their Black identity and what that looks like. And and the folk that I was interacting with looked at me and said, this is, you know, we really, you know, we don't want to be mean or anything, but this project is really not helpful <laughs> because we know we're Black. We don't have a question about whether or not we're Black. That's something that white folks say about us that we don't agree with. And if you really want to do some good, you need to talk about how the police are killing us. That was very familiar to me as somebody who grew up very much aware of police violence, very much aware of both community and family stories of police violence and police killings. And that was something that immediately helped me to understand the diasporic connections between Brazil and my own experiences. And I started to do that work. In doing that work, it led me through a series of transformations to really think about how white supremacy is global, to think about how Blackness is a political positionality that resonates throughout the Americas. One piece of evidence of that is police terror and the similarities with police terror across the hemisphere. And so all of that is really the journey that got me through my research. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, it's a longer story, I, I, right. I admit. But, <laughs> right. no, but I think it's indicative in the fact that, you know, what you described is just really the, the past and the processes that we engage in, right? And so there was an, an intellectual quest that you went upon as part of your call to adventure your journey. There was an emotional quest that you also engaged in as well because there was something that in terms of affect you were yearning for in terms of knowledge, right? And understanding, as well as this, you know, esoteric spiritual connection that you have with just, well, what does it mean to say... I am a member of this sort of umbrella community. And however, that umbrella of a community, of a diaspora that, you know, you're defining it as, but there's this affect that's a part of that. And I think it's an interesting, you know, segue in which you talk about how the praxis of your research and social justice activity was connected back to your father and his experiences, right? Understanding what we know about religiosity and the African descended community, right? And the ways in which those merge, particularly here in the United States and how that propelled you to a place like Brazil. But even pulling back the onion a bit, I think even for some of our listeners, the fact that you went off to the Middle East as a high school 
schooler, I think in and of itself, we need to pause on because I think <laughs> that, because you kind of swept by it very quickly, but I think it's important for people to recognize, and particularly for those who don't necessarily have access in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I'm not making any sort of judgments, but you know, there's some folks who the only way that they're able to leave their environment is through a book and now mm-hmm. through YouTube. Mm-hmm. But then for you, as part of your own journey, you actually physically leaving and to study and to be immersed in other cultures and amongst different people really helped to propel you to being in of all places, Brazil, which is really like as a social scientist, this wonderful laboratory of understanding racial identity formation. And then to have people on the ground say, yeah, but we don't really look at it like that. Like forget about what's what you've been taught in the ivory tower. This is how we live it. And so this is, I mean, how you describe your process is quite compelling. Now, can I, dare I say that the pivotal moment that confirmed to you about the work that you're engaged in today around the social justice activism and Black liberation really spawned in Brazil and being there and studying and living amongst the people? Or was it really coming back? It was there before. You're right. There are silences in my story. And I think part of the silence in my story is because my story is very complex. And, you know, I was in the streets protesting around Amadou Diallo in high school, among other things. I mean, we we protested a lot of stuff in high school. (laughs) That was one of the things that I remember very vividly. But it was very much a part of who I am before. Hmm. And so I think that part of the reason why Brazil became such an important place for me in my journey is because of the nature of Black politics in Brazil. It was something that I found that was missing in my experience in the United States at the time. Although right now we're in the middle of Black Lives Matter and it's ubiquitous to talk about police violence and, and all of these things in the 90s, just when I was in high school, it was not ubiquitous. There were, everybody knows, I mean, obviously there's always been people organizing, but it was the height of the idea of the super predator. And that was the height of the tough on crime democratic regime. My politics haven't changed on how I feel about these issues, but at the time I felt alone or at least very alienated, especially because I found a lot of patriarchy in the more Afrocentric movements that were talking about these issues. And so I felt myself floating in a lot of ways. I don't know if you have folk who are listening to your program who are younger or people who may have children who are in high school, et cetera. I think it's important for people to to know my story in terms of how I got to the Middle East in high school. I went to Woodrow Wilson High School, which we're going to change the name soon, God willing, which is a public school high school. And they have an international studies program. I actually went there because of the international studies program. I was a magnet transfer student. I really wanted to go abroad. And I remember in our office for the program, they had a big old binder that had all of these different opportunities or whatever you wanted to do, right? Different fellowships and stuff like that. And I remember one afternoon after school, I just sat down and I looked through the whole thing and I found this program called the Kerr Scholars Program. And I said, okay, I want to do that one. And, you know, the counselor kind of looked at me like, uh, okay. They're like, okay, so that's, this is the program you can apply to. 
this is how much it costs. And I don't remember how much it costs. It was thousands of dollars. I don't, and I was like, I don't have that money. And they were like, okay, well, why don't we apply for a scholarship? And so I wound up getting a full scholarship from an institution that will remain nameless because they tend to be genocidal and lethal. But um, a big corporation gave me a full scholarship to go to Tunisia for the summer with the Curse College program. And so that was the first time I had been abroad. That was the first time I was abroad by myself. I was 16. I don't, I still, to this day, I don't know why my mom let me go because she's just really nice, but I'm sure it freaked her out because I did go to, I mean, there was, it was a, it was a chaperone program, but I went by myself at 16, wound up really being fascinated by that whole process because it helped me to locate North Africa in Africa in ways I hadn't been taught. I had been taught that there was this big Saharan desert and that the people of North Africa were different from everybody else in sub-Saharan Africa. And then I started to realize that that's not exactly the case and things are a little different. And people started to recognize me as black when I was there. I was the only black child, obviously. And I wound up having lots of political conversations around blackness Mm. that entire summer, which I'm sure all of my fellow scholars will remember. That's great for you being 16, because I think oftentimes, you know, the context in which we live in can very much frame even those same kinds of conversations, right? So being U.S. and going abroad and having topic-wise the same conversation, but the nuances, the issues, everything else you really get to see the distinctions and that it's not this monolith of maybe there are certain kinds of thematics that are consistent because of supremacy, because of patriarchy, but its expression is nuanced, is different. And so for you to have had that experience at such a young age to be able to say, I'm going to take myself out of my U.S., context and put myself in this very specific geopolitical context that's earth shattering and mind blowing in and of itself as an activity. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I'm glad you say it that way because <laughs> I never think about it to be really honest. With mm. you. And I think that that you're, you know, it's it's part of the reason why this work is so In the beginning, I said, it feels like I'm still in the middle of the path because it's very rare that I take a step back and look at everything, everywhere I've been, because I'm still trying to struggle and get up the mountain, you know? And so it's, it's almost as if, oh, you, you know how you get, you're climbing up a mountain and then you never look back to try to figure out where you've been. And then when you happen to look back, you're like, whoa, that's pretty far. And that's kind of how I feel about it because it is very, it you know, it was very different and strange for me to do that at that age and to keep doing it. But these are the things that you're right. They, they definitely did shape much of my politics and also helped me to see things in a different way. And I, and I will say this, part of the reason why I see Brazil the way that I see Brazil is because of my experience in North Africa. Because anybody who knows North Africa knows that Brazilian culture, although people really want to talk about its ties to Latin America and its ties to Portugal, when you live in Brazil for any period of time and you have lived in North Africa, you see just how profound the Arab influence is on Brazil. I mean, it is striking. It is more Arab than it is European by all stretches of the imagination. And I think that that has probably has a lot to do with the the Moorish influence on Portugal. And it helped me to really understand the global dimensions of race and Blackness in particular. Because when people were telling me what you 
see about Blackness here in Brazil is unique because of the unique ways that the Portuguese engaged in slavery. And I'm like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. This is a uniquely North African legacy of slavery. And this is a uniquely North African legacy of race. And the ways that race mixture is, the ideology of race mixture is very North African. Right. And few people, I know a couple of people who agree with me, very few people recognize that and very few people talk about that. And it's part of the reason why I have been so adamant about my critiques of racial democracy and why I'm so adamant about the relationship between racial democracy and anti-Black state terror. And I think people are kind of stuck on that when we're talking about Black liberation. And when you look to places like Brazil and other countries in um, throughout South America and through the Caribbean, where, you know, the police state and the practitioners within the police state, you know, typically look more like you than not, but are still engaged in oppressive practices Mm -hmm. and genocidal practices. Mm -hmm. And I think people sometimes struggle because here in the United States, it's very easy to say, well, the organized organized police state is very much an extension of an overseer plantation relationship with African descendants. But then you go to other countries and it's just like, well, that doesn't really comport because this person looks like my cousin and my uncle and everyone else. So then how do you then make sense of that? And then not really being able to dissect and understand, well, what does this really mean when we're talking about nation state identities and the police state and the intermarriage between the two. I think that part of what my work has done is really help us to see and understand that indeed in Brazil and in the United States, it is an extension of the plantation logic. We have just forgotten that there were also black overseers. And, you know, everybody thinks about KRS-1's video over, uh, when it starts overseer, 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 officer. Right, right, right. right. And it's a black man. And I think that part of what we're seeing is all of the kind of layers of the assumptions around race that we make are just not the case. There's more resonance than there is difference. You know, one of the things that's tripped up our conversations around race and policing in the United States is this reliance on the role of a white police officer in order to diagnose white supremacist policing. And you don't need a white police officer to have white supremacist policing. You can have a black police officer and an Asian-American police officer and a Latino police officer like you did in the case of George Floyd as well, right? Right. They're all in there together, helping one another to perpetuate white supremacy. And so I think that, you know, what, what what a place like Brazil helped me to get gain was perspective on that. Act Two, The Road. So Kristen, for for me, and and I like this part of our conversation because just as you sort of parsed out your own journey, you also meshed in the experience of what we're taught as graduate students, as we're learning the profession and the trade, right, of being a researcher and being a scholar, and then still being forced that we need to be beholden to the academy and what it teaches us. And then when we get into the field, as even as part of your own journey, you're learning, you're experiencing, and things are solidifying for you in ways that the textbook and the teachings in the classrooms can't. And so here we are in this space where 
you know, we're traversing both academic community and other public spaces. And particularly for you as an African descended person, as an African um, descended and identified black woman, we're in this current hashtag climate of hashtag me too, hashtag black lives matter. And now of course we have hashtag site black women. And we have that now US based as well as globally. So how do you show up in, in these spaces? And then, you know, maybe you can talk to me a little bit more about the movement itself of hashtag site black women. For me, it's been important to show up in ways that allow, that build towards freedom. I'll put it that way. Hmm. I think that one of the reasons why I started Sight Black Women was because I was becoming keenly aware that there were rhetorical gestures being made towards Black liberation and Black feminism in the academy that were not syncing with the practices of people in the academy, presenting themselves as radical Black feminists and social justice advocates that in actuality were perpetuating not only oppression, but also building that identity on the backs and the subjugation Mm. of Black women. Part of, for me, what has been this journey is really understanding the need to demystify white supremacist, patriarchal, imperialist misogyny in all of its forms, and particularly in the ways that it manifests in misogynoir, quote, Trudy, and quote, Moya Bailey. For me, it's a two-sided struggle. There's, there's a struggle that's happening in the streets that is a struggle that is for all of us. And that, to me, is the important struggle. And then there is the struggle that's inside the academy. That is the struggle to deconstruct the structures of power that create a false barrier between the academy and the world. And that false barrier is important because a lot of people think, well, why do we care what's happening in the academy? We care what's happening in the academy because that's where the legitimation of knowledge happens. And if the legitimation of knowledge is happening in a space that projects itself as somehow separate from the world, then what ends up happening is that by demystifying the the ethos of the academy, then what we are allowed to do is unite our struggles across spaces and to disrupt the elitism of knowledge production, disrupt the hierarchical nature of knowledge production, democratize knowledge, and reveal the ways in which Black women in particular, the population that I've been really concerned with, how Black women in particular have been disenfranchised from our ability to be producers of knowledge, to be recognized as producers of knowledge. And so for me, it's interesting. Psych Black Women didn't start off as a hashtag. It actually started off as a t-shirt because, you know, I've told this story before, but I went to a conference um, back in 2017 and I saw somebody present slides that had parts of my book paraphrased on it. Literally, it looks like they put parts of my book into the thesaurus and just changed the words. You know how people do that? And didn't credit me at all. And you can imagine the sense of utter bile, of anger that uh, that rose up in me when I saw that. And you can't do anything in a moment like that. You can't do anything because you're at a conference. If you say anything, what am I going to do? Stand up, curse the person out, 
walk out, then I'm the crazy black woman, right? And then I really am delegitimated in all ways. And so you cannot, you literally cannot say anything. It is the most frustrating and hand-tying situation that one can be in. And I think people don't really understand just how powerless we are in the face of these kinds of injustices, right? You can't, you can't curse people out. You can't, like, literally, when you do that, because of the elitism of the academy, then what ends up happening is that you become the bad person. And so I just got so frustrated. I literally remember feeling like I either wanted to scream, break something, or cry. I didn't know which one, but I was just frustrated. This was not the first time I had been plagiarized. I actually knew and recognized who was doing it. And it was the person who had been doing it for years to me. And, and which is why I often talk about the relationship between site Black women and the Me Too movement. Because in actuality, it is a kind of abuse that's built on misogyny. And it's very much, in, very much impregnated with power dynamics of patriarchy. And so what ends up happening is that you get gaslighted, mm-hmm. you get completely blackballed, People talk about you and there's a way that there's a process that goes on that delegitimates you as a scholar and as a person in order to not draw for that person to be able to pretend that you're imagining things and that this didn't really happen to you. And that at that moment, I was like, you know what? Because I was frustrated. I was like, you know what? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to make a T-shirt and it's going to say cite black women, period. And I'm going to sit. In these conferences, and I'm aware it because next time somebody does this to me, they're gonna have to look me in my eye, look at my shirt, and plagiarize. I ran out and I was talking to my one of my best friends, and I was just joking with her about it. And I was like, "Girl, I'm about to make a shirt. I'm gonna make a t-shirt. I'm gonna sell that joint." I decided I was actually gonna really do it because, as you can see from the conversations we've had about my life and my trajectory, when crazy ideas come to my head, I actually do them. And I brought them to the National Women's Studies Association meeting back in 2017 for the 40th anniversary of Come By Here Collective was there with one of my longtime collaborators and friends who was running a school in Brazil, in Bahia, that's for kids that are in a community that's, that are plagued by violence. And so I decided if I'm going to make this shirt, because this is back to my whole Black feminist ethos and, you know, who I am as a person, I don't want any money from that. So, so I was like, here, you take the money and I'm going to make the shirts, Okay. And so she was just like, OK, word. I was like, all the money I make from the shirt, I'm going to give it to you. And I literally sold those shirts and handed the money to her at that moment because she was there presenting with me. What ended up happening, because I made that out of a space of pain, when I went to the American Anthropological Association meetings, people asked me for the shirts. I was like, okay, I guess I'm bringing shirts. And so I ran to a t-shirt printing press and I had some made and I brought them and they were selling out. And I was like, oh, wow. And they were just like, well, you know, what are you going to do? You got to keep doing this. You got to keep talking about this. And people already knew my work and they already knew the fact that this is something that I've, you know, the way that I do my work is completely enwrapped in, in, in this for so much, so long. And they were just like, you got to do this. You got to keep doing this. This has to be something. Put it on social media. And so that's what I did. Huge following on Twitter. I mean, yes, thank God. I mean, but it's (laughs) interesting because I never thought, oh, let's get on Twitter and let's make a thing. That never happened. People at the conference were like, go on Twitter. Do this. Do that. Like, okay, fine. And And it just took off in ways I had no idea that it would take off. I mean, I really, really did not. And that was never, it's not like I came to this thinking I'm going to make a thing and I'm going to make it big and it's going to be a hashtag. And it's never my thought. It's powerful in that 
the fact that it took off and it gained momentum and it's been a mainstay these last three years from the moment in time in that 2017 conference is the fact it spoke truth to so many people's experiences. And I think that's, you know, although it came out of pain for you specifically, right, and motivated your individual action, an individual action turned into a movement because people were like, no, me too in this experience. My erasure is real and I see it. That breathlessness that she experienced when you see your work up there and someone purported as their own yeah. had that experience as well, where you sit there and yes, true to form, it's almost as if someone knocks you in your chest yeah. and you're like, wait, what? Yeah. But it resonated and it's powerful in its resonance. And the fact that, you know, for African descended women, and I'm going to speak, and perhaps it might even be a cisgender orientation or interpretation I'm about to share, but it's like you use us, you use our knowledge, you use our skill, you use our Black girl magic, you use all of that as a shield, but then use us as a target too. The space that I can see how you in your work and all that you do connecting these efforts to Black liberation, because how can we truly be free if we still have misogynoir in the premise, right? We can't talk about white supremacy and not attend to misogynoir. And even within our own African descended communities, how males and females engage in patriarchy too. Absolutely. Right? And I mean, and, and also recognizing, and that's why, you know, part of what I believe people have tapped into with Sight Black Women is that very early on, I have always tried to shape the conversation around the recognition that this is a struggle that we all, this is a demon that we all need to tap. It's not as if we're taking a finger and we're pointing over there and saying, over there is the problem. You are the problem. No, we all are participating in this at some, in some levels and we all need to fix it because this is a, a hegemonic way of thinking. Black women also participate in erasing other black women. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? And, it, and, and oppressing other black women and, all, you know, all these things happen. But instead of us taking an accusatory tone, what I really have tried to get people to think about is what kind of educational projects do we need in order to fix this? A lot of times with Site Black Women, because we have our Twitter and Instagram and we have the Site Black Women Collective, which is siteblackwomencollective.org. And we have all of our, our website and all those kinds of things. And one of the things that we have tried to do religiously is really try to keep a positive tone through Sight Black Women. And so you will rarely see us post things that are about negative topics. We try to stay away from that as much as possible, not because we're not trying to support people, but primarily because we really want to, you know, I think about the words of Michelle Obama. It's just like, you got to stay high, you know? You, you cannot get into the muck and the mire because this is about something way bigger than all of us. And so what we try to do is give people information, promote people's work. We try to tell people about what Black women have done we try to inform people about how to have responsible citational practices. We do workshops. We, and that's something I'd never expected. People started asking us for workshops. And I was like, okay. So we've been putting together workshops. 
jobs and doing this work. And it, part of what I realized is that for all of us that are in the collective, these are practices that we have been cultivating, right? And we've been teaching one another for a long time, but we've been doing it in a really insular way. What I'm realizing now is that one, that's not how everybody cultivates their Black feminism. That's number one. Number two, that is also about a praxis that that is very much unique to who we are. And especially the way that it's transnational, because one of the things going back to that journey, one of the things that I realized is that, you know, some of the voices that are erased are the voices of black women that don't speak English. Mm. And so because of the imperialism of the U.S. Academy, those works are all but completely invisible. And so what we've been trying to do, multilingual podcasting, we've been trying to really engage in the work of black women who are not always from the U.S., right? You know, because people love it when we tweet about Audre Lorde. They love it when we tweet about Toni Morrison. And when we tweet about, you know, somebody who, like Beatriz Nascimento in Brazil, they're like, who? We're trying to slowly but surely create that kind of public classroom where people can can really engage. And I think one of the things that I'm most proud about with Sight Black Women are, is the international engagement. We have a ton of followers in England, like a ton, England and the continent. And so it's been amazing. And that's when I realized that this was about so much more than just the immediacy of our local U.S. Academy experiences. That's when I realized that this is something way, way bigger than me and that I could not claim ownership over it. Like that's when I realized this has to be a collective. This has to be something that's a movement. This has to be something that is forward facing. It has to be educational. It has to be something more than just the cancel culture of Oh, so-and-so plagiarism, so-and-so, so let's cancel them. It can't be that because that's not going to actually get us to free. Act three, where we land. So we're at a point in the show that I would love for you to have an opportunity to plug any of your latest projects. If there are, if there's an upcoming series of workshops or shows or book projects or things that you're currently engaged in and where people can follow up with you and your particular work in Brazil or the work with Site Black Women? Well, right now we're in the process of revamping our website. And so I will send people to the website recognizing that it's going to get a facelift. I promise everyone. So it's siteblackwomencollective.org. On Twitter, we're at Site Black Women. Instagram, at Site Black Women. Facebook, at Site Black Women. We even have a TikTok account, but we're not on there yet. We haven't figured out the cool dance moves for citation. But um, we do, you know, we have our podcast i'd really like to encourage everybody to also po- follow our podcast since everyone listening loves podcasts because they listen to this yeah. one yeah. so you can listen to once you listen to this one religiously then also listen to ours um you can find it on soundcloud or itunes um or anywhere you get your podcast and we're in the process of getting our our programming together for this academic year we're going to have some exciting events happening with Site Black Women, um, trying to do some webinars and some, some conversations 
things that are in the works that I'm not really ready to talk about just yet, but there's going to be some cool stuff going on, including some really interesting transnational conversations and projects and et cetera. There's also um, going to be the special issue of Feminist Anthropology, which is going to be dedicated to site Black women that'll be coming out in June of 2021. So stay tuned for that next summer. I, one of the things I do want to say is if there's anything that you would like to see site Black women do, shoot us an email, siteblackwomen at gmail.com because for us, movement building is about community building. It's about creating a space where people can come and get knowledge and share knowledge and feel like they are really building the ways that they do things. And so if you have any ideas, send them to us and thank you. Well, folks, there you have it. Thank you to Dr. Kristen Smith for joining us and sharing your journey of belonging to Blackness. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you and I appreciate this space. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.